Today we're starting a new sermon series called uh, Resistance. And uh, just to kind of from the beginning to, to let you know, like this is loosely based on a book uh, called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. Um, if you're interested in reading that book, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, and when I say loosely, I mean, you know, it's the, the ideas for each week come out of the book, but then there's a whole lot more that kind of went into this that isn't out of the book. So it wouldn't hurt to read it, but it wouldn't actually follow exactly what we're talking about. Um, but one of the things that I always think about in the beginning of the year, and especially with this sermon series, a lot of times I'm thinking about uh, what it would look like to have a conversation around some sort of practice, right? Some sort of like uh, practice that you could add to your life or do. When, you know, it's kind of around the time when people would make a New Year's commitment. And so, you know, we've talked about in the past, we've talked about rest and Sabbath. Uh, we spent a, a whole sermon series on rest and Sabbath. We talked about prayer a few years ago. Um, today, uh, I kind of want to, or this sermon series, I kind of want to focus more in on a phrase that we use a lot um, that I kind of feel like maybe it's time to put away, but I want to keep the concept, right? So this idea that oftentimes I will talk about us living as countercultural uh, beings in our culture, like somebody who's countercultural. But I feel like that phrase has sort of taken on some other meaning and kind of maybe seen, I, I was having a conversation with a friend and I said something about, you know, Christians need to live counterculturally. And they were like, oh, that's such a cliche conversation. Like, what do you mean counterculturally? You know, all, and I was like, oh, I never thought about what the baggage around that term. So I love this idea of beautiful resistance because I think it embodies the same term. Uh, this sermon series will basically be looking at the world seems to be moving in this direction. And as Christians, it's easy for us to move with the culture by accident, to drift toward the culture. It kind of goes a little bit with what we talked about last week. Uh, but we're called to stand firm. We're called to stand. And we're called to hold onto God's culture, God's kingdom, um, and not float towards the culture that, uh, that the culture around us is creating. And in doing so, we're resisting. We're resisting allowing the culture to change us. We're resisting allowing that culture to be built in our lives. And we're doing something different that stands apart from the culture that we, that we live in. And in a way, what we're doing is we're resisting. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to beat you up every week because I think you're probably going to feel like as we go through these different topics, um, you know, I have a, a, we're going to be talking about apathy today, privilege next week, cynicism uh, three weeks from now, fear four weeks from now, exhaustion and idolatry as we talk about this idea of, of resisting those things. And it could be that you come to church every week and you think, wow, I really stink at resisting this or that or the other thing. And what I really want to do is I just want to make you aware of the fact that the culture is pulling on you in these directions. That like potentially you're moving towards what the world is creating as opposed to standing firm on what God has called you to do. And sometimes it is a simple change, a simple mindset change that allows you to then to say, okay, no more of this. I want to, I'm going to stand right here. This is where I'm going to be. Um, and I hope that it's actually in certain times where you go, yeah, actually, maybe I have resisted in that way. And maybe I can do even more in my life to create God's culture, God's kingdom in my life and in the lives of the people around me. But I am aware of this and I'm paying attention to it and I'm not going to allow the culture to kind of pull me in this direction. Um, and so today we're talking about apathy. I want to I share with you this quote, which kind of pushed me towards this idea 
It's from D.A. Carson, uh, and it says this, people do not drift towards holiness. It's a little bit of what we talked about last week, too. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. And I want you to know, this is, this is how Jesus phrased it too. He said, we're all on this road that leads towards destruction and we're just drifting. And if we don't do something, if we don't make a choice to get off of that road onto a very narrow path that leads to a very narrow gate towards salvation, then we find ourselves drifting towards destruction. And in this case, I'm going to make the case that we'd be drifting toward the culture around us, which is akin to the same thing. And we don't do this by accident. This will be a choice. This will be uh, action in the opposite direction. And oftentimes, we think about that action as fighting or starting a fight or maybe like getting out there and making a case for something. And what I want to say is this is actually much more about resisting and about standing firm. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And all it tells us to do is to resist. We don't have to fight. We don't have to take up the fight with the devil. We just have to resist the, the, the pull towards being worldly and being part of this culture. He says, instead, what you should do is come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. See your sin. Notice what it is. Be aware of it. Call it out. Don't be okay with it. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James chapter 4, uh, verse 10. He will lift you up. And I think the, we could think, let's go start a fight. Let's make the culture look like the way that God has called us to live. And what I'm telling you is, I think simply what we are called to do is to resist. Right? To resist. To say, I'm not going to move towards the culture. I'm not going to be dragged towards it. I'm not going to drift towards it. I'm going to resist. And what we're actually called to do is to stand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your what? It's okay, say it out loud. Stand. You can take your stand against the devil's schemes. doesn't say you have to fight. doesn't say you have to conquer. doesn't say you have to win. It just says you have to stand. You have to stand where God has called you to. And he gives us all these things to protect us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil the heavenly realms, he's saying all, all the stuff that we're fighting against, that we're standing against, is actually spiritual stuff. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, it's almost like he wants us to just stand. <laughs> I think that might be what's going on here. But pay attention to this, all right? Sometimes we take this for granted, because this is a pretty famous passage, and we Quoted all the time, we're going to beat the devil. We're going to take the fight to the enemy. We're going we're gonna to win this battle for the glory of Jesus. You know, And it's like, okay, 
But let, let's look at what actually, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, right? Breastplate of righteousness, okay, in place. Oh boy, it ends right there on my thing. I have more. It's not just a 14. Mm-hmm. JK, LOL. I don't have it right in front of me. And I don't have a Bible right in front of me either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 15. What does it say? Belt, breastplate. What else we got? We got a helmet. We got a sword. We got shoes. Right? We're protecting our feet. <laughs> There's so many jokes going through my head about toes. Uh, shield. Notice how everything in that breakdown of what we have, right? Notice how everything in that breakdown of what we have is front-facing. Right? Everything you have, there's no rear guard, right? There's no rear guard. There's nothing on the back of you that protects you from anything. So, and we have a sword, sure, but we're called to stand. Like, to me, when I look at this passage and I see that we're called to stand and let sort of God win that battle, we're protected from the front. When we stand, we're protected from the enemy. When we stand, we're protected from the culture. We're protected from what is drawing us towards something, we, a place we don't want to go. But we're not protected from the back. If we turn and run, we're not protected. And if we let ourselves drift into it, I don't think we're protected. If we let God win that battle for us as we stand, I think that's how it was designed. Hey, look, it is here. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish the flaming arrow. Did you just add this on the fly? You're unbelievable. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray for also for me that whenever I speak, the words may be given to me so that I will fiercely... Okay, that's great. You get the idea. We're called to stand. Uh, what I'm not doing is calling you to create a battle with culture. I'm not saying we need to go win the world for God's standards, or we need to hold the world to God's standards. In fact, I think we've done a whole lot of this over the last, I don't even know, 30, 40 years, where we've just basically started arguments with the world and held them to standards that they don't follow or have any desire or call to do. We've said, hey, you should live like God has called you to live, and yet every other part of their life is not, is not uh, lined up with God's will or purpose at all. And we've said to them, hey, you should do everything like I do things because God's called me to do it. And I think what God has really called us to do is just stand apart from the culture, to take your stand, to live your life the way that God has called you to live it, and to resist drifting toward the culture around you. So that's the theme, that's the idea of, of what we're talking about through this next sermon series. And today, I want to touch on apathy. And I, I do believe that apathy is probably a, a pretty easy uh, sin or way of life for us to fall into, given the world that we live in. And I want to illustrate this first with, uh, with a story that Jesus told. But I want to challenge you to think about the idea of how do you meet some of the places in the world that are the ugliest, like, is it possible for you to kind of turn away and put things away and avoid dealing with and avoid having passion for some of the places God has called us to, to pay attention to? But there's both a personal apathy that I believe people struggle with, and there's also a cultural apathy where when we run into certain situations or people or types of situations, 
we, almost as a protection, have caused ourselves to learn how to not care about things or to put them aside. And I think it is generationally a huge problem for us, and I'll tell you why in here in a second. But Jesus was um, challenged by one of the teachers of the law who it was a rule follower. He said to Jesus, hey, I want to make sure that I'm doing this all correctly. And that's a great way to start. Like, if you come at it and say, hey, God, show me how to live your ways uh, exactly the way that I should, that's probably a great place to start. You're a rule follower. That's good. Uh, and Jesus said, cool, what do you think it is? And he answered correctly. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, sounds like you've been listening. Sounds like you've been taking notes. Sounds like you know exactly what you're supposed to do. So go ahead, go ahead, go do it. It's actually really pretty simple. Hard to do, but it's very simple to understand, right? And obviously this very learned, learned uh, religious teacher kind of understood that part of it. But then he asked the question, okay, well, let me break this down a little bit more. You've told me that I need to love my neighbor as myself. So I, I just need a little bit more clarification, Jesus. Like, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't seem to really like that question very much. He was kind of like, uh, yeah, why is this a question? Shouldn't this be easy for you to understand? So he answered, you know, he did a Jesus juke, right? He answered with a story. Jesus loved to either ask a question back or answer with a story uh, whenever he ran into a question like this. And the story he answered with was in chap Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, and this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert of law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love the Lord, your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, right? So it's interesting that the, the writer of Luke, Luke, you know, the guy who wrote Luke, uh, is telling you kind of what this guy was thinking. And later on they had a chance to process this with Jesus. And so it's possible that Jesus even shared what the guy was thinking as he explain to him why he answered the way that he answered. So he says, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. Now this was kind of a common trip that they would have been familiar with, and it was a dangerous place to go. It was a dangerous route to take. Oftentimes there would be people who would rob you or would take advantage of you, and uh, you generally would go with people that you trusted, and you would generally be safe and careful about your trip. He says, so this is a common thing to think about, that this man was sort of jumped by a bunch of robbers on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away. By the way, when you end up naked after a fight, you have lost the fight. It also happened in Acts. There was a bunch of people that got beat up, and they lost all their clothes, too. Uh, and it says, they left him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, what did he do? What did he do? Yeah. I, I can't imagine a more apathetic response to seeing a half-dead person on the road to say, you know what? Hey, I'm a, I'm a priest. He could be dead. If I touch him, that would make me unclean. I'm very important. Got a lot to do right now. I uh, probably need to get going. This could be a trap, right? I might be in danger if I go try to help this person. Right? I don't know if you've seen Saw, but... Uh, I don't recommend it. But that's the whole idea of it. There's a guy laying there dead the whole time, and then eventually he's not dead, right? This could be a trap. They could be trying to get him. There's a million reasons why this priest should pass over on the other side of the, of the road. He should stay away from 
this man. And so he, with just amount of apathy, avoids the situation and passes by on the other side of the road, doesn't involve himself. I'll leave it for somebody else. I don't, I, I can't really care about this right now. I'm too busy. I'm afraid of what might happen to me. There's a lot of reasons why I have apathy in this situation. And so what does he do? He passes on the other side of the road and leaves the man for dead. Okay? So this is just a regular priest. Now it goes on. It says, so too a Levite came when he came to the place where he saw him, he passed on the other side. Same exact thing. This is even a more, probably a, 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 another priestly person from the tribe of Levi. That all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. This is probably somebody who maybe is even more important. Um, and so he passes by on the other side of the road, shows total apathy. Right? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So here comes a Samaritan. And we've talked about the, the uh, conflict between Jews and Samaritans uh, and how they didn't get along and they didn't respect each other and there was no love lost between the two of them, that they had been in battles before, that the Samaritans had defiled the temple, that there was kind of little mini wars where they would ransack each other's villages uh, and that you were kind of always on guard when you passed through a Samaritan area if you were a Jew. This wasn't a, a loving relationship between two groups of people. But this Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and it says when he saw him, what did he do? He took pity on him. And that word pity can be translated in many ways, but basically he was moved to act because of the emotion that he felt for the person who was left for dead. He did not show apathy in this situation. He showed care, he showed mercy, he showed compassion for this man. It says he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to the inn. He took care of him. The next day, he paid for uh, his stay there. He said, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So I think it shows that it's possible for us to be living right, to be religious, to be trying to do the right thing, to, to be serving ourselves, our comfort, our busyness, our, our, you know, even to, in this case, make spiritual reasons why we should avoid getting involved or doing something or feeling compassion for somebody. And we just feel apathy and move to the other side of the road. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what creates more apathy in our lives. So here are three things that create apathy in our lives. First, is the overwhelming amount of information. Uh, we live in a time right now where, uh, and this is something I would teach teenagers, uh, you know, when I was a youth pastor, and I think it's even worse now, even more incredibly difficult to navigate now, but you have a feed, whatever it is you're looking at, whatever kind of social media, and it's easy for us to blame social media for everything, and honestly it is to blame for everything, but also there's a lot of other reasons why, but if you're looking at social media, and you got a feed, and it's basically trying to keep your attention. The goal of this phone and app is to keep your attention right into it. It's so funny now that my, uh, my son calls me out all the time. He's like, Dad, put the dopamine machine down. It's like, shut up, leave me alone. Uh, right, it, it's designed to keep your attention. And everything in that feed is the same. It's the same size, uses the same uh, you know, font, it's the same, everything's the same. And as you're scrolling through, you're seeing things that are not weighted the same, 
in a feed that weights everything the same. So you're, you're scrolling through and you see like a cat video or, or a dog video, right? And the next thing you see is a meme that somebody put up. Here's a joke. Here's a political comment of somebody being obtuse. Uh, and then, you know, you see something, oh, here's a world event that happened. There was a car bomb in, in Syria. Or like, oh, there was a, a shooting somewhere in a school somewhere in, in the United States. Or, oh, there was um, a Supreme Court ruling on, on something. Like, you're, as you're scrolling through that feed, there is an unbelievable amount of information kind of bombarding you, and all of it is the same. So there are things in there that you should care about and feel emotion over, but your body your mind has taught you how to not feel the weight of everything you're looking at because it would break your attention and it would cause you to put the dopamine machine down. Right? The, the, the feed that you're looking at has created a way for your body to not have the right response to things that are actually important. When you come across something where there should be an emotional, compassionate, merciful, loving response, you just keep scrolling and you allow that apathy to kick in and to keep it moving. It's like almost overwhelming because I just don't have time to give every one of these things the amount of emotional response that I should give them. We've been kind of ruined in that way. Like as we're scrolling, the things that are the most important are the things that we just kind of try to kick out, get out of here, I don't want to look at this too long, I don't want to feel anything here, let me go back to the cat video. Right? Let me go back to hating this person for their political comment. That feels, that feels much better to do, those, two, those, those things. I don't want to actually feel the weight that there's a group of people that died or something happened that was horrific or some kid has cancer or there's a, you know, a GoFundMe for somebody who's struggling. Like, I, those are the things I don't, I don't want to feel. I don't want to see things in there that will cause me to feel too much. I had this conversation one time, and, and I think it even happens in our relationship with God. This one person told me, like... Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I like coming to church for baby Jesus, so I'll come at Christmas time. I don't like the cross. I'm like, what? I don't like the idea of Jesus suffering, so I don't really want to come to Good Friday. I like Easter. Easter's good. That's the risen part, the like, you know, coming out of the grave part. I'm down with that. I don't want to do Good Friday because I don't want to deal with the emotion of the cross. I don't like it very much, right? I had this conversation. We, we do this to ourselves. We protect ourselves with apathy. We don't want to feel everything because it feels like too much. It's overwhelming, the amount of things. And so we can get to a place that says, hey, if I can't do anything about any of this, why should I, why should I pay attention to any of it? I just need to not feel about the things around me. I think it's because it's presented in a neutral way. If everything is important, nothing is important. And what it does to us is it desensitizes us. And I think it desensitizes us to pain, to trauma, to violence, to language, to sexually suggestive content. I mean, all this stuff that's coming at us all the time, we get sort of apathetic to because it's a protection mechanism because there's an overwhelming amount of it in our lives. Now, that's just my sociological viewpoint on one reason why you might have more apathy in your life. It might actually be important for you to put the dopamine machine down and to allow things that should move your heart and hurt and cause you pain and be something you should pay attention to, to be in your focus for longer than the three seconds it takes for you to swipe it away.
Second idea is that uh, the blessing and the curse of comfort. It's a beautiful world that we live in. I have not gone into Target to get groceries in like three years. I just pull up the app and order the things and pull up and someone puts them in my trunk and I drive away. And it's magical. Okay? I, if you asked me five years ago if I would want to do that or needed to do that, I would be like, no. And now I love to do that, right? You can order anything in the entire world and it can be to you within a day and a half, two days, if you have Amazon Prime, right? Like I could just, I was talking uh, to somebody and they were like, yeah, I wanted to order like a pair of shoes. And so I just told Alexa, hey, order me a pair of shoes. And she was like, based on your history, you like these shoes. And she was like, they were like, yeah, go ahead and order those. And two days later, the shoes showed up in the, like didn't even use a, didn't even like push a button to pay for them. Didn't even use a phone to do it. Just asked Alexa, send me a new pair of shoes, right? And Alexa, it's a crazy, amazing, awesome, incredible world. I, I have a, I have a fake heart valve that makes me stay alive. It's a great world we live in. We were just talking about like uh, at our, our small group, would you, if you were like gonna travel in time, would you go forward or backward? Or when would you go? And Not backward, I'd be dead. Well, there might not have been enough junk food for me to... Okay. Miles is referencing that there was a guy at Costco who called me fat the other day. That's a whole other story, and I'll tell you that later. Uh, he wasn't wrong. Uh, anyways, the blessing and curse of comfort. It's amazing that we have so much available, and I think our reach is incredible because of the technology that we have. If we're using this stuff the right way. We can reach people now that we've never been able to reach. I mean, if you go talk to some missionaries throughout the world, the way they're using technology is unbelievable, right? There's cool things that we can do with technology and with the comfort that's available to us in this world, but it is also a curse because we want to serve our own comfort and we want to make sure we stay comfortable. And you probably want to go to a church that you show up to that encourages you and sends you on your way at the end and you feel good about it. And you probably want everything in your life to be comfortable. You want to make sure that everything you do is comfortable. I hate to say it. I'm really proud of you guys. But we can, I can statistically show you the amount of, the percentage of people that don't come to church when the temperature drops below zero is actually pretty significant. Because people are like, ah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's like really cold out there. We, we want to serve our comfort. That's a problem. It creates apathy in our lives. It is a blessing, but it is also a curse. And we need to pay attention and not allow ourselves to just be comfortable all the time. There has to be places in our lives that are uncomfortable. Anyone who does work out, I know, talking about you guys, right? Uh, you know you have to push yourself to a place where you're not comfortable to get the results that you're looking for. It's the same way with our state of apathy in our lives. If we never allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, we never find that place of actually the compassion and the caring being enacted in our lives. The last one, or the third one, is availability of perpetual entertainment. I don't even think I need to say any more about this. You could absolutely Netflix queue your way to apathy. It's very easy to do. All of us have done it at some point. You could absolutely binge watch your way to... And the amount... I was trying to think of like the difference between my kids' experience and my experience... You know, when I was growing up, um, I'm a 80s and 90s kid, you know, zero to, zero to 10 in the 80s and 10 to 20 in the 90s. And so it's like when I wanted to watch TV, I would turn on the TV and I had like 
maybe 12 options, which was like better than my parents who had like, like two, you know, they had like, it's like one channel or the other, you know? Um, and if there wasn't something on those 12 channels, which most of the time there wasn't anything you wanted to watch, you were just out of luck. And then you went outside and played. That's what I did, went outside and played. And now my kids, holy cow, I don't know why they would ever go outside. The amount of streaming services and availability of stuff, it's like we have to go, hey man, you gotta cut it off at this amount of time because like otherwise, you just go all day, and I get it. I would, too, if I were your age. Like, it would be easy to do. We could just keep ourselves perpetually entertained. And part of you probably likes coming here and watching me because it's entertaining, because it's like, all right, circus monkey, get up there and entertain us. <laughs> Number four, last one here, lack of conviction or mission. I feel like sometimes we miss the idea that we've created a lot of apathy in our lives because... We don't actually really believe in anything. We won't actually hold the line on anything. We won't actually say this is important enough for me to make the case that I need to act on this or, or be convicted here or do this. And we've created an allowed apathy in our lives. And it's not just personal, spiritual apathy. I believe it's apathy to what's going on in the world around us. You know, I, I even thought about like when... You know, it used to be, I don't know, World War II time frame, for sure, World War I time frame. You couldn't see what was going on, right? So you'd have a newspaper that would tell you something. It was like behind by a week or two weeks because they were like sending information back and forth. It's hard to get the information. You'd go to a movie theater and they would show you clips of what was happening kind of before the movie and give you kind of an update. It was sort of like a more of a propaganda type thing where we're, you know, hey, we're going to win or, you know, whatever. Like, all of that stuff, something happened to us from the time of not having access to that information or seeing it to now, seeing it live, seeing horrible things live, seeing trauma live, watching things happen on the internet that are is like streaming or within 10 minutes of something happening that has definitely caused something in us, caused us to kind of either A, feel it more intensely which then we want to kind of protect from somewhere deep down, um, or B, caused us to kind of try not to pay attention to it because we don't want to necessarily feel all that. So I don't know what it is maybe that collectively we've been become apathetic to or personally you've become apathetic to, but God has not called us to live a life of apathy. And I think this is one of the biggest turnoffs uh, for any person that I meet when they are apathetic about things they should not be apathetic about. In fact, I think passion, the opposite of apathy, is something that draws people in. When a church is passionate and when people are passionate, something happens in those relationships where people are drawn to people who have passion around a certain mission or a certain conviction. And I want to share with you a passage from Paul in Romans chapter 9. And I think this is an unbelievable idea, an unbelievable example of what it looks like to have passion. And here's, here's what Paul says. He says uh, in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He goes, I am not exaggerating with what I'm about to say. I know that there's some of us who speak in hyperbole, and we have to like sometimes tell people when we're actually not going to exaggerate what we're about to say. This is what Paul's doing right here. He's going, hey, look, I'm serious about this. You can confirm it. 
Okay, what I'm about to tell you is truthful and I'm not exaggerating it. This is how I really feel. Okay, don't think this is hyperbole. What I'm going to say is a really strong statement, but I want you to understand I really, really, really feel this way. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Like Paul basically was telling these believers, I would trade places with Israel if I could. That's how much I care and am passionate about reaching Jews. It's funny because God called them to Gentiles. Right? God called them to non-Jews. He called them to create relationships in places where the church didn't exist. And, where, and he did it faithfully, but he said there was something underneath everything that was driving him a passion that he couldn't let go of, that he couldn't stop thinking about, that he couldn't stop obsessing over. It was something that drove him. And I, I wanted you to know that this, path, this message, you might, you might apply it personally. You might say, I'm just feeling so apathetic in my relationship with Jesus, and that's fine. But I sometimes think that there's something that gets loose in us where when we realize we have apathy towards something that God has created passion inside of us for, right? that, that, that maybe we need to actually step back and focus again on whatever it is that God has called us that passion for. And he's given us all specific passions. right? My, my passion, it's pretty clear. You probably could, if I gave you a second, say, what is the passion that drives me? Somebody want to take a shot at it? Old school video games. The Dolphins. Okay. Yeah. My idol got killed yesterday. Jesus is too generic. That's, that's the church. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah, if I was going to tell you, like, specifically what I felt like my passion in this world was, is that I believe that God wants to change the world through the local church. That's what drives me. I believe he wants to reach unsaved people. I believe he wants to use the local church to change the community. This is why I'm pursuing people who aren't here yet. Like, I believe that church plants and sort of non-traditional forms of church work the best at reaching people who are non-traditional. That's you, hopefully. That's what drives me. Can you answer that question? What passion specifically, has God given you? I don't expect you to have the same one as me. I, I hope that you have a different passion, that God has absolutely just lit something inside of you that you can't let go of, you can't stop dealing with, you know, and, and probably parts of your life have revolved around solving this problem or feeling this way. But maybe it's possible that you've turned that off and you've allowed apathy to become the thing that has ruled your life and you've let go of the passion that Jesus has given you. For Paul, it was essentially what he's saying is like, hey, I would give it all up and trade myself for the Jews if God would reach through me to them. Like, I would give up my eternal salvation for them. Like, that's, a, that's an unbelievable passion that Paul has. I'm also not telling you that has to be your passion, but for you, there's probably something that God has called you to do. And I want you to know there's a mountain of excuses why you can't do it. There's a mountain of excuses why you, you can't. And if you were somebody who steps back and just comes up with all the reasons why you shouldn't do something, then you're going to miss out on living in the passion that God has given you, on fighting that apathy that you have in your life. 
Now, I'm going to, Megan, I hope it's okay. I'm going to pick on you just for a second. It's actually going to make you look better than me. Okay, so. <laughs> we, Megan and I, we've worked together tw- almost 12 years now in youth ministry. And then in this church, she's our first hire, and she was basically on staff before we even had a position for her on staff. We know each other incredibly well. Like, my brain works unbelievably in certain areas, and her brain works in the exact opposite areas, and we are a, a perfect team, right? We've worked our way into that position for a long time. When we first started the church here, uh, I'm the big idea guy. I would come up with a million ideas all the time. I'd be like, I want to do this. I want to do that. We have a, we have a famous one that we all often talk about. It's recliners for fathers on, on Father's Day. I had this big idea that I wanted all the dads to come in and sit in recliners on Father's Day. I don't know why. Don't ask me questions. I was passionate about the idea that dads should come in, sit in recliners, and drink root beers during service. By the way, I still... Oh, this one's not open. This one's open. I still want to do that, by the way. Somebody won't come up with an idea of how to do it. Megan, we were in this situation where I would often come up with a big idea and she would kind of shoot it down. Because she is the person that comes up with all the reasons of things that need to get figured out in order to actually do something like that. I didn't care about all the, those details. I just wanted dads to be in recliners. I thought it would be really cool. So she said, you know, no. And I was like, hey, you can't shoot all my ideas down like the minute they come out of my mouth. Otherwise, it kills my spirit, Okay. You, that's not, it's not fair. I want and what she would do is say, no. And she was thinking about all the things that we couldn't do because there's a million reasons why we couldn't do it. So we took this little principle that we learned from some leadership book or podcast or something that we listened to. I don't even remember where it came from. I think it was a GE principle, like something that they applied. And it's called Yes If. Has anyone ever used this Yes If principle? It's fantastic. If you're in a marriage where one of you is like the idea person, the other one is the like practical person. I've just given you gold. Take notes. Okay? In this working relationship, we decided that if I came up with a crazy idea that Megan was absolutely dead set against because of all the reasons that she could think of that it wouldn't work, she would say yes if you can solve these 10 things that I have in my head that need to get solved. So she would say yes if you can find all of these recliners on a Craigslist. Uh, get them picked up by somebody, store them before the event, have them brought in the day before, have them set up in the room where it won't wear out all of our volunteers, right? And have them taken away and either stored or disposed of after the event, then yes, if you could solve all those problems, then yes, we can do it, okay? I want you to know, apathy around the passion that you have will come up with a million reasons why you should not do something that you think you should do, that God is calling you to do, that there will be a mountain of resistance to the things that God has called you to do, but passion finds a way. I will have a Father's Day where there will be refiners. (laughs) I will solve all those problems someday. It was not worth it, and that's why we didn't do it. Passion finds a way, guys. Apathy makes excuses. Passion finds a way. And I cannot tell you the amount of things that we have overcome even getting this church to where it is today. A million excuses why this shouldn't work, won't work, isn't. I had somebody, you know, just the other day tell me like, hey, we were thinking about joining the church when you started it, but we just weren't sure. We just just weren't sure you were actually going to be able to pull this thing off. Because passion finds a way through all that stuff. 
And whatever it is that God has called you to do, whatever he has given you as like dead center, this is what I want you to care about, and this is what moves your heart, you should lean into that pain and find a way to serve what God has called you to serve and let go of the excuses and the apathy that comes along with that sort of mountain of resistance that you see in your life. And to go forward with passion. And I just think like sometimes we just have given up on something or we haven't circled back to it or we've kind of, you know what, there's a bunch of reasons why I can't do it right now and I shouldn't or there's, and we just come up with reasons why and we just are okay with putting it away and we stop feeling and we turn off that compassion we have for it and then we find ourselves drifting. People with passion don't drift. They stand firm. People with passion move towards the thing that God has created them specifically to care about and to feel passionate about. So what is it? What is it for you? What is God calling you to move towards? And I, Yes, personally, spiritually, fine. Let's apply it there too. But what thing in this world, and I've, sometimes we think we've got to go start a movement from scratch. I would recommend that nobody go start a movement from scratch. Don't do that. Find other people who care about the thing you care about the most and work with them. Work with the places of the kingdom that are already operating in the area that you feel passion in. It's actually not as hard as you might think it is to go follow the thing that God has called you to follow. And so what is that thing for you? What is it that you need to have passion around? All right, it's 11.15. We have to pick our kids up. So let me close this in prayer. God, would you show us those parts of our lives that we have turned off where we have allowed apathy to take root, both personally, spiritually, but also, God, the things in the world that we just cannot be okay with anymore. Would you give us a new, fresh desire to go and serve in the places that you have called us to serve, to do the things that you have called us to do? Would you allow us not to be apathetic the way the world is apathetic, God, but to put aside all the things that create apathy in our life and to lean into the maybe potentially the pain and for sure the passion that you have created inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand? I want to send you with a blessing this morning. Uh, I can't take credit for writing this blessing. It's, uh, it's a blessing of discomfort. Would you just put your hands out as if to receive from the Lord this morning? May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn away their pain, turn it to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children 
and to the poor. In Jesus' name, amen.